It is Hanukkah. No one over here is in a festive mood, although the motif of expelling the darkness does land pretty well this year. War resumes between Israel and Hamas week nine, and we will talk to Ilana Dayan, one of Israel's most prominent journalists, about the mood of the nation and much more. It's Unholy. I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's unholy to Jews on the news. As you say, I can't think of a Hanukkah that has anything like the uh, mood around the whole Jewish world that this one does. It sort of crept up on us, I feel. I mean, preview, you know, normally with a big festival coming, there's a build up to it, there's excitement. Instead, I found so many people going, really? This week? Um, their minds, their hearts were elsewhere. They were preoccupied with other things, gloomier things. Uh, so the darkness bit is certainly there. I'm heartened by you saying you think there's light expelling the darkness because right now we, we certainly got one of those boxes ticked, um, with yeah. the darkness. Obviously, there was some light in recent weeks with a lot, you know, the week before, uh, with those hostage releases, but they did, you know, we, we since we recorded our last episode, that all came to a halt. And, um, the, those rolling ceasefires came to a stop. And since then, it's been back to full throttle war and conflict, particularly focused on the South and around Han Yunus. Uh, and, you know, the those hostage reunions, it feels like already quite a distant memory. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're talking on Thursday and it is, uh, two months to the day since uh, October 7th and we will we will talk a lot about uh, the national mood with Ilana Dayan in our conversation a fascinating conversation I should say later in in the show but I kind of had to say that we still feel like we're walking uh without our epidermis like that we are walking without the first layer of our skin and and everything is very very still very painful still very sensitive um and as you said we had a few uh, days of of rays of light with with hostages coming back 86 israeli hostages mainly children and mothers and the elderly who came back and reunited with their families and we said this uh, last week now it's becoming more and more clear what these hostages uh, have gone through and what they've been through uh, after 50 days, more than 50 days in captivity. You have more and more stories since we recorded our last episode, uh, stories like uh, Yagil and Or Yaakov, 13 and 16-year-old brothers who are branded with an exhaust pipe of a motorcycle by Hamas terrorists so as not to get lost. You have the stories of children not being, you know, fed enough, really torment and, and, and psychological warfare terrorists, uh, telling these hostages that Israel forgot about them. Some hostages were told that Israel doesn't exist anymore. Um, just think of this. This is taken out of the, the, uh, war books of Egypt and Syria and the Yom Kippur War, but they did this to Israeli POWs, not to Israeli civilians. There's this quote that kind of, still uh, stayed in my head ever since it was um, uh, said in our studio on Friday. It's uh, Itai Pesach, he's a professor in the Children's Hospital uh, Schneider in Israel, and he said this about the, the stories being told by children. He said, these stories are not mine to tell. There is a time when they will tell their stories, and when they do, I don't think any of us will be able to sleep at night. So that is about the stories coming out. There are still 137 Israeli hostages 
in captivity. And obviously, it's very, very clear that they need to be taken out pretty urgently. Their families are saying this because they say, listen, now we know what is going on, what is being done to them. Israel still thinking, the official stance being that the, the military operations that have been, of course, reignited after Hamas refused the uh, latest uh, hostage uh, deal, that this pressure put on Hamas will convince them to actually release more hostages. Indeed, the families of these hostages are saying this is endangering them and, and maybe this isn't the right way to go. So this is where we are uh, in week nine uh, from the Israeli point of view, of course. That um, balancing act, I've been having conversations with various people involved in the Israeli military this week, and that, that the word comes back is often there's this tension between the two stated war aims. On the one hand, to defeat, dismantle, degrade, you hear different words, Hamas's military capacity, and the other war aim to bring the hostages back home. There was always a tension between them, but now that tension is the fighting concentrates on southern Gaza, where it is believed those hostages are held, that tension becomes very literal, very direct, uh, in the sense that you are bombing areas where those hostages could be held. And, you know, that is, uh, the whole war is a series of dilemmas in which there are often no good choices. But that's a really specific one. And as you've been saying, the families are worried about that. that. Is it possible that a building that gets struck, yes, contains a Hamas operative or a command post, but also their own loved ones? And that's um, something that uh, it must be weighing on those military planners. Um, the other point I was going to make was about the information that keeps coming out. Yeah, that has a very important effect, I think. We get on in our conversation with Alana Diane to talk about the extent to which every day is October the 7th. But the testimony that comes to light from released hostages renews again every time the emotion, the anger, the pain of October the 7th and renews the sort of, you know, tops up again the tank the reservoir of emotion and support that Israelis will be feeling about this whole war effort. And so, you know, sometimes if there is a country is at war, the original provocation gets further and further away. It's two months now, as we've been talking about, and therefore things can recede. The energy can dim a bit, but not this time because each day, each story that comes out means people feel renewed determination uh, to get behind that war aim and to defeat the people who did this. So the psychological warfare that you're describing, the cruelty that you're describing, actually has, from Hamas's point of view, a counterproductive psychological effect, because what it does is it's redoubling the determination uh, of public opinion. I don't think there was any worry that support was fraying, but it does, uh, you know, worry from Israel's point of view. I don't think it, um, you know, on the contrary, it is um, consolidating and deepening that resolve. Yes, we should also uh, talk about the fact that we, as time progressive, know more and more uh, that part of Hamas's mission was to sexually assault uh, Israeli women. Uh, this is a, a story that uh, we, we will talk about, the brave uh, women and men who have brought this to the forefront of the international community, and of course, the depravity of how long it took, I believe it's 54 days, for UN women and the UN to acknowledge the fact that this was indeed uh, part of uh, the warfare. It is a very, very difficult thing to look straight in the eye. I have had 
um, people who I really respect in the beginning of the war asking me, but is there any proof that this actually happened? Well, sadly, a lot of the proof was murdered. And that is also the modus operandi of these terrorists. But we now know much more about what was done, uh, sadly, to, uh, and, and tragically and terribly, to women uh, during this, uh, during this uh, dark day of October 7th. This has become a really central arena or battleground in the international argument about the war. More and more, um, there were these, this big gathering where there was a message uh, from Hillary Clinton, for example, a big gathering in at the United Nations in New York, mm-hmm. hundreds of experts, women, activists to discuss the uh, testimony, uh, the evidence that's coming to light. And a lot of uh, the campaign, we've talked about it before on the podcast, is a kind of reproach to UN women, the body that exists to fight uh, violence against women and girls, but also a whole variety of feminist groups and women's organizations who have not been alive to alert to this issue and have been so slow to speak about it. There is a sort of unofficial commission of inquiry that's seeking to gather evidence, the initial forensic evidence that in a crime scene you would have gathered it was just not possible in a you know in a location of a massacre but more and more testimony is coming to light and it is now being shown uh, to international audiences and opinion formers and some of that came came to light the, the centrality of it is partly about winning this argument internationally against those who are saying, look, we get it, it was really bad, 1,200 died on October 7th, but look, the Israeli response now is killed so many more people and surely can't be justified. That's a, a body of opinion that exists in the in, outside Israel. The counter-argument to that is, don't just look at the numbers dead on October the 7th. Instead, look at the nature of the sadism, the cruelty, the nature of the crimes, and central to that is the notion of sexual violence, uh, the torture, the mutilation, and so on. And just to give a very literal example of how you know central this is, or, or, or very direct example, rather, uh, Matthew Miller, the um, United States spokesman at the State Department, gave a briefing this week in which he you know, he didn't say it was half that, but he said it seemed to him that one of the reasons why the uh, rolling ceasefires came to a halt last week was because the next group of hostages to be released included a lot of women, uh, young women included. And his conjecture was that Hamas did not want those women released because they would testify as to what had happened to them, including and especially on October the 7th. Um, you know, he later softened that and said, look, it was his own theory. It was his own speculation. But lots of people have been similarly speculating that the those women uh, and what they can testify to is damning evidence against Hamas. It goes to this argument that this wasn't as it were, just a matter of killing people. It was a matter of a particular heinous danger. And that is something that will be alarming to Hamas, not just in terms of Western opinion, but also in the wider Arab and Muslim world, that the notion of Hamas men committing this kind of crime, Mm -hmm. even the kind of people in the Muslim world who might want to defend Hamas as resistance and noble fighters against Israeli occupation and so on, would have much less truck with these kinds of crimes. This is a 
propaganda problem for Hamas. And this just it just gives you one example, the fact that maybe it played a part in preventing the ceasefires continuing and the hostage releases continuing, tells you this isn't just any kind of side issue. If you were making the mistake of thinking this is a side issue, it's a mistake. I think it is increasingly central in the argument around this war. And should be central and should these stories should be told uh, more and more. And I think we should point out that there has been work being done here, uh, bringing this into the focus of the international community. If it was up only to the international community, they could have disregarded this uh, completely. But there has, and you mentioned this, the commission, uh, civil commission uh, of uh, war crimes, it's Kochav El-Kayam Levi, uh, who's a law professor and dealing with that. There's Shari Mendes of the Body Identification Center here in Israel. There's, of course, the investigative branch of the Israeli police, Lahav 433, that have been dealing with this specifically and the foreign ministry. And we should all also point out journalists like our friend uh, Biana Goladriga and like Jake Tapper on CNN who have been dealing with this more and more and saying this was a central part of Hamas's mission on October 7th. It's very, as I said, you know, Jonathan, I've been <laughs> here, you've been here also living through and listening to all of these atrocities is a difficult thing to do, not only as a journalist, of course, but as a Israeli and more than that, as a person. And I know how difficult it is to just think of the fact that these were young women, some of them partygoers at the Nova Festival, some of them living on the kibbutzim. These were their last minutes on earth, and this is what they went through. It's terrible, but we need to give voice to this, these women, and we need to talk about it, because this is what happened. And it has the, the context of this war. We can't ignore it. When people call for a ceasefire and say, we have to stop this, great, but what would you plan? How do you deal with this devil who did this to you once and says it will continue to do it? If you call for a ceasefire, it's all connected to how, you know, we look at at this place that we are at two months in. I think, you know, when you said you're living through it, I think, again, I always feel like I should emphasize this for people who are listening to this podcast outside Israel and don't get to see you on the nightly news every night inside Israel, that you particularly have a kind of locus here. You are the one very often on a hearing these stories, this testimony firsthand. So you are going through something extra, I think you'll need. And uh, you said, and as Israeli as a human, I think as a woman, I think for you to be hearing this testimony is asking something very, very hard of you. And, um, and that's part of this. I should also say that we have been very deliberately sparing about the details of this. We didn't f and don't feel it's right to talk about this on this podcast, but it's not, people don't have to look very far. There is reporting. Christina Lamb wrote for the UK Sunday Times, uh, a long report full of detail. You can look at the Washington Post. You can look at the Israeli newspapers, documented, closely, you know, forensically detailed accounts. It is very hard to read this material. It is graphic in the extreme. Um, but if you have anyone, you know, if you're listening to this yourself, or if, if you have anyone in your life who is skeptical, or has expressed doubt about the uh, evidence and veracity of these reports, you only have to look at some of the ones we've just mentioned, and you will see there a kind of detail that will, uh, I'm afraid, you'll find it very hard to uh, forget it once you've read it. And this is more and more as I said, central in how this war is understood. And I think it does go to that point where people say, look, this can't be just 
that Israel sort of degrades Hamas ready for the next round. This is a different kind of threat. And I think, look, that point should have been clear with the numbers of dead, but maybe it's more clearer still when people read the detail of not just the numbers, but the method, the way Hamas operated on October the 7th. So increasingly central issue and uh, one that I think is actually only going to get sort of larger in the debate about this war. Um, We should say something about the um, argument, since we're talking about argument, outside Israel in the United States this week, an exchange in Congress at a hearing that went viral around the world. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, uh, who's had an interesting political journey from the sort of moderate wing of the Republican Party to the more kind of Trumpist wing. She was grilling three uh, heads of major Ivy League universities, uh, University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, and uh, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Three women, as it happens. Um, And she was particularly pressing them on their own uh, guidelines and whether they would tolerate people voicing what to anyone else would sound like pretty clear, direct, anti-Semitic hate speech. Uh, Why don't we just hear a bit of that hearing? Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual. Targeted as, at an individual. It's so targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of anti-Semitism? You know, what's so interesting about this is that it's a moment in which truth has been exposed. So clearly, just in these answers, in these answers that have been phrased by lawyers, right? that it is just a simple question, yes or no, and they can't answer it one president after the other. And again, this truth that has been exposed, that they don't think that Jews are a minority that needs to be protected. And that is just how it comes out. Now, the the interesting thing is that since this conversation happened, it has been overtaken, and you see two out of the three presidents kind of either by Twitter or by like this short video uh, issuing these clarifications. They had ample time to do it in front of the camera in Congress. It was an hour, it was a debate that lasted a few hours. You know, I see people. You see this sort of circle on Twitter. And now trying to say two things. Once, one is that Representative uh, Elise Stefanik has history with Trump and she didn't denounce his anti-Semitism, his meeting with anti-Semites, etc. And then the other kind of uh, genre that says, oh, Intifada is not calling for genocide of Jews. I would just say uh, in parentheses, if I can, that given the Israeli experience, I'd say our view of Intifada is a little bit more realistic than the people who see this. But all this unimportant completely. All this is a diversion from what has actually been exposed here. And 
And, and really, the question is what to do. You know, we talked with uh, Simon Sebag Montefiore about, uh, he said, you know, let's, let's talk uh, uh, to the donors about their donations. I don't think that's enough. I think when you hear the top law firms in New York, top 10 law firms saying, you know what, we're going to consider taking applicants from places like Harvard. This is what they said after the letters of the student bodies came out supporting Hamas. That is another way of effectively saying to these people, listen, if you don't get what is happening here, maybe there are other ways to show you. Um, you know, I don't want to get into too much history, but uh, um, my... Uh, you know, my, my grandmother who um, entered on a, a medical school in Poland on a quota for Jews. This reminded me, I was remi reminded this morning of the fact that uh, a few of these institutions had quotas for Jews not a very long time ago. So I'm just saying the burden on proof of proof is on them uh, to, to prove that they can uh, improve their record a little bit. We have, we have a long memory. So that is just, uh, I think, the, the thing I wanted to say about that. The focus of the previous discussions around universities were about the students and about the student bodies, the examples you've just mentioned, and therefore action that might make students pause before, uh, you know, hailing Hamas as freedom fighters and so on. The, I think the reason why this was uh, uh, went around the world and was shocking to people was this was the heads of the universities. These were the grown-ups, right, the presidents of the college. Colleges. That was shocking. I think you're absolutely right to talk about the lawyer, uh, the legal uh, uh, mindset that they were having. Clear. Somebody has asked me what you know by their own standards. What were why you know what was going through their minds? What were they thinking? My best guess is that these are universities that think they have to have absolute guarantees of free speech in line with the First Amendment, and therefore they only, as they see it, ban hate speech when it is, A, directed at individuals, and B, severe and pervasive. That must be the formulation that's there in their guidelines, and so they thought they were giving this legalistic answer. None of that, like you were saying, none of that actually changes anything because the question was put to them really explicitly. It wasn't about does intifada mean genocide, just like you said. It was, if somebody calls for genocide against the Jewish people, in your guidelines, is that is that okay or not okay? Whatever the legal letter of the law says, how was there not an instinct in them that kicked in to say, put aside the rules and regulations? That is obviously wrong and anti-Semitic, and I'm going to say so. And all three of them failed to do that. And the reason why I'm a bit, uh, I am sympathetic wholly with their critics is, I think it's right to say that had they been asked that question about other minorities, the non-legal instinct would have kicked in and they'd have said straight away, obviously we don't allow that, that kind of hate speech. You know, the hypothetical that's given always, but I think it's fair, is had they been asked in, the, in a congressional inquiry, would you, Harvard, uh, classify as hate speech and ban someone going through the campus calling for the death of all black people? I don't think they would have said, well, it depends on the context. I just don't think they'd have said it. Some other mechanism would have kicked in, in their head, that would have said, oh, I definitely cannot be seen saying that. That will be a terrible thing for me to say. That clip will be on social media. I've got to say something else. And that instinct didn't kick in here. Well, this it is did not to it say did, that, you know, yeah. well, it kicked in later when yep. they got back, but, mm -hmm. you know, but not in the moment. And I think mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, you don't have to say any kind of hierarchy of racism or that black, you know, black people have it worse than Jews or Jews have it worse than black people. Nothing of that. I'm not getting into that. The point is there is an instinct that is missing 
uh, a bit here and that somehow says genocide of Jews depends on the context. <laughs> and I wish, I don't know, I still am yet to hear, you know, an answer to the question, tell me the context in which that is fine. Give us the context in which genocide for the Jews on balance. Yeah, that's okay. Um, I can't imagine it. I don't understand how these three, you know, highly qualified, very brilliantly educated people could not uh, have that impulse without thinking on some level. Uh, and we had David Beadle on the podcast. His argument always was when it comes to progressives and their protection for minorities, Jews don't count. And I think a bit of that did kick in here. So that was uh, what was going on in Washington. I think it was a fascinating discussion. As I said, it uncovered a lot of uh, uncomfortable truths. Um, but we uh, can't uh, not talk about Israeli politics this week, even though uh, the war is raging on and we're at week nine, as I uh, said. But there has been there have been a few things uh, going on politically here, and, and all of this has to be understood through that uh, prism as well. So um, first of all, what we see, uh, generally speaking, is Netanyahu cementing his base at all costs. Uh, the war budget has passed in the Knesset this week. Uh, he has been giving extra funding to ultra-Orthodox uh, parties, extra coalition funding. This has been, uh, he received huge blowback uh, on this. I mean, that the fact that Israelis are fighting a war, uh, there are 250,000 evacuees from the southern part of Israel and the northern part of Israel, 350,000 reservists not working, and the funding of this coalition is going uh, in, in, in massive parts to the ultra-Orthodox. We should mention a community that generally speaking, does not uh, uh, serve in the military. Again, what we see is Netanyahu being very, very concerned about cementing his political base, either preventing elections, because that is beginning to be the conversation here is in Israel of early elections uh, in the shadow of the war, or trying to make sure that if there are elections, he'll still have uh, their support. Another point to be made, Jonathan, the fact that Netanyahu is saying very clearly, it will not be the Palestinian Authority to rule Gaza in the day after, this is also part of him cementing his political base. Because, of course, this could be said that the smarter move for Israel is to say, this is going to be our day after uh, goal, and that thus also relieving some of the pressure coming particularly from the United States on this. But he can't do it from the coalition of political standpoint, because this is going to be his line if there are indeed elections soon in Israel, and many people think that in 2024 we are going to see elections, he's going to say, no, no, I'm going to protect Israel from another, you know, taking over the Gaza Strip uh, by any sort of Palestinian uh, element. Also to mention, we should, and that is that the Merav Micheli, the head of labor, uh, decided to face reality after more than a year and not to run, uh, basically leave the head of, of her party, Labor Party. Uh, many have said, and we have um, a little bit over a year after the elections, that her decision not to merge with Meretz is one of the uh, fatal decisions from the standpoint of the center and the center left in Israel that led to this Netanyahu coalition uh, as we speak. So that is where we are uh, politically in Israel uh, right now. And what you said there about Netanyahu, just confirmation is something that I was picking up from so many people, including ex, but very senior figures in the Israeli military. Their worry that they are being led by a prime minister who is still putting his personal political interests first, rather than uh, the national interest. And those examples you gave us would go to that critique, I think. And, and lots of people right at the beginning said what would be best for the country would be if he were to say, I'm not going to fight the next election, I'm going to step down. And therefore, everyone can trust in the idea that I am doing this only for what serves the country. You know, 
dream on that is not him that's not his personality and what you've told us says politics continues Merev Mikhaeli's departure does that mean there are no women now leading any of Israel's many political parties was she the last and only one it is what it means. There will be uh, elections for the head of labor. It could very well be that the next head of labor is also a, mo a woman. But I think that at this specific point, you are right about that. That is also problematic in itself uh, for the political system. Nevertheless, it is not as if women do not feature prominently in Israeli public life. And alongside you, Yonit Levy, none more so perhaps than uh, our next guest, who is really one of the leading and most respected voices in the whole country. Ilana Dayan has spearheaded the investigative news program Uvda on Israeli television for the past 30 years. It's the Israeli version of 60 Minutes. Um, I was going to say she's one of the most well-known and well-respected journalists in the country. I think it's safe to say she is the most well-known and well-respected journalist in this country. Uh, not only a good friend of mine, but now a good friend of the pod as well, and someone that many Israelis look up to definitely during these dark days. So Ilana, it's so uh, such a pleasure to have you on Unholy again. Thank you for being it's my here. My pleasure. Thank you for the warm introduction. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, last time we spoke, it was really in the, I think, the, the very turbulent days of the uh, judicial overhaul and the protest. And at that time, we said we've never experienced anything like it. Now, we are in, you know, a very, very dark patch. It's been two months, almost to the day, since October 7th. But it kind of seems like we are cemented on that day. Um, let's talk a little bit about you know, how you perceive the national mood. You know, we, both you and I, would give anything now to go back to the dark days of the judicial overhaul because we realize they can be so much darker. And I think if we have, perhaps to let Jonathan understand our national mood, he should be one day visiting our studios when I uh, come and take over the broadcast when you finish your newscast at, at 10 in the evening. And the look in our eyes, you look at me, I look at you, and we realize that we are in such distress. We are heartbroken, personally, nationally, but very, very privately as well. I know that you are trying to shield your kids from the news. My kids are a bit older. I'm trying to share with them the news. You know, I, I calculated last night, both you and I together, we have together 70 years of experience in television journalism, in the media, which is quite a lot. It's a, it's a, it's a time frame. <laughs> and we have never experienced anything like that. And when I'm trying to understand what is it, what is the magnitude of these atrocities, it's not only the number of casualties, it's not only the, the brutality of, of October 7th. I think it's the fact that you mentioned we are still stuck there. We are cemented in October 7th. I, I remember interviewing in, in Bar Goldstein. She lost her brother and her nephew, and all of the rest of the family was kidnapped to Gaza. Thank God they are back now. And she told me on the radio, I'm still stuck on October 7th. Mm -hmm. And I think partly we cannot get over it because we are not over it because of the people who are still in Gaza. Because those who are still there, we know them by now. We didn't know the victims of October 7th. We know by now mm -hmm. the ladies and the young women and the soldiers. We know them by name. We know the red-haired baby who might be in harm's way. We know 
that people might never come back. Mm-hmm. We know their names. We know their families. Gaia, who is the editor of this podcast, she can tell you everything about all of them. I know that because I consult with her. And that's part of it. I, I have to tell you one short story. Mm-hmm. I think it was October 9 or 10th that I realized the story of Shira. Shira from Berry, we did an investigative piece about her 12 years ago when she gave birth to a pair of twins. There was medical negligence, malpractice, and uh, she stayed in a terrible situation, basically disabled both, both mentally and physically, but the twins were healthy and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And her aunt took over Shira, and she was the one who brought them up. Both twins were murdered in Berry. Her aunt, Ayala, was murdered in Berry. Mm. Their grandfather was murdered in Berry. So, Yonit, we are drowning in an ocean of pain and loss and heartbreak, and it somehow only gets deeper and deeper. So, asking about the national mood, it's fucked up. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> That's a way to sum it up, I agree. Yeah. I wish I had That's- some, you know... Something more optimistic to yeah, say. I mean, I what, what Ilana isn't saying when she sort of, when, when I pass on the baton to her on Thursdays, is that I kind of look at her. I look at you and I kind of wait for reassurance in some way, right? To say something reassuring. I, I think I've been saying that to Jonathan as well. Say something reassuring. It's very difficult to there do. There is none. Yeah, I don't know what you come up with when Yonit asks that question, either silently or explicitly, but I don't have much to offer when I hear it. I mean, you've described really powerfully, Ilano, the the mood. I saw it for myself a couple of weeks back when I was in Israel and the sense you've both said of being still there in October the 7th and just going deeper and deeper into it. I think that's shared by Jews around the world too. But it just struck me hearing you that maybe this explains something going on that I think people outside the country are asking, which is the... As it, the phrase that's used is international pressure, it's particularly talked about America, Washington saying, gifts sending signals, messages, more or less coded, now these days much less coded, saying about Israel's response in Gaza to change it, modify it, soften it. And at the military political level, maybe not getting through, but I'm now wondering if the reason is a kind of emotional reason, which is that Something that was said to me by some uh, very senior retired general who I spoke to in Israel who said, there is just no room for anybody else's pain right now. We are so consumed with the shock and trauma of October the 7th. We just don't have the kind of, he didn't use the word bandwidth, but I'm now using the word bandwidth. Is there a connection, in your view, between the mood that both of you are describing and feeling and living through and the kind of, um, is it a refusal or inability to respond to world pressure, which is saying, look at what's going on in Gaza right now. We feel the pain of October the 7th, but it's too much. Can Israelis just not hear that? Because you're absolutely naturally, inevitably, so consumed still with the shock of October the 7th. That's one, one way to put it, you know, that fury and loss and anger and the sense of vengeance 
is really fueling the war in Gaza. That's one way to put it. But there's another way to put it. There's a monster that grew up on the other side of the fence, on the other side of the border. It erupted. It brutally invaded, invaded us not only territorially, invaded us physically. Violated. Violated, raped mm. us, butchered us, slaughtered us, kidnapped us, kidnapped our kids, kidnapped our grandmothers, kidnapped our soul. And all of a sudden we realize this monster has to be dealt with. It was not dealt with because of millions of reasons. And so you could put it in another way. There is a military effort that Israel is engaged in in these days, which it hasn't before October 7th. Now, do we have to listen to the world? Of course we have. I, I was talking to another uh, senior of military officer the other day, and he said there are three timers, three clocks ticking. One is the military one. When will be approaching the aims of this war? The other one is, of course, the American ticking clock and the international community. For how long will we have the legitimacy to launch and continue this war? Yes, given the toll that it's taken also from civilians in Gaza. But the third clock is the Israeli public opinion clock. And that has to do both with the faith of our prisoners there, our hostages there, and with our casualties. Because eventually, especially in Israel, success or military success is not really measured by the number of casualties you inflict on your enemy, but rather on the number of casualties you suffer yourself. And we count, Unit does it every night. Mm. We count soldiers, young boys, family people, reservists, miluimnikim, who are killed in the Gaza Strip every day. And I think the public is still behind the military because of everything we said right now. But at some point, we'll have to be taken into account. As far as Biden goes and the American administration, we all, three of us, we know it's the last Zionist president in the Oval Office. There has been no precedent to the sentimental support and the concrete support, and we need it. We will not be able to ignore for long, if that's what you're asking. The American mm -hmm. ticking clock and the Biden administration uh, demands, and, and you know, Tom Friedman wrote it the other day, well, that uh, Israel's stated aim is to get back all its remaining hostages while destroying Hamas once and for all, while doing it in a way that doesn't cause more Gazan civilian casualties that the Biden administration can defend, and without leaving Israel responsible for Gaza forever and having to pay its bills every day. Good luck with all of that. But that does beg a question, I think. Maybe it's two questions. One is, when will the war be over? When will we know it's over? Maybe that's a separate question. And Maybe it's too early to ask this after nine weeks, but what kind of Israelis will we be when this is over? With your permission, if it's okay, perhaps we talk about it later, because mm -hmm. I think uh, what kind of people will we be, it's a different kind of, of question and, and issue. But when will the war be over? Mm -hmm. The same senior military officer that I quoted before, he told me, I don't think we have much more than two weeks, perhaps several weeks mm -hmm. because of all the clocks ticking, which begs the other question, what will happen in terms of achieving the goals of this war within two or three or four weeks? And I'm afraid that both you and I, when we speak to Chaim Yelin from Beiri, and he says we will not come back if there's one Kalachnikov mm -hmm. left, one rocket launcher left, 
He knows the truth. We know the truth. We will not be over and done with Hamas, but we can get closer to it. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, I agree with many in the brass who say that were it not for the military pressure applied by Israel, there wouldn't have been any hostages deal. Mm-hmm. So I pray to God and to everybody in power here that we really will be able in as short a time as possible to apply as big, as intensive pressure as possible on Yichia Sinwar, on Hamas. It will not end with the elimination of Hamas. Mm-hmm. It should end with the hostages coming back. Otherwise, this country will not be the same. Mm-hmm. The, um, I'm struck by your prayer to to God and to the people running the country. More um, to the latter. For, for, yeah, and because, uh, and this gets to something I know you've been reporting on a lot, but the permission that will well, partly the world, but more importantly, in a way that Israelis grant their leaders to do, as I understand what you're saying, whatever it takes in Gaza to defeat what you described, you know, powerfully as the monster. That permission, in a way, relies on confidence that Israelis can have in their government and in the IDF to win this war. And my question, in a way, based on some of the reporting you've done about the failures of the leadership of the country, military, intelligence, political, to heed the warnings that something terrible was being plotted by Hamas for October 7th, that failure surely undermines confidence Israelis can have that the people in charge can do this job of slaying or even just very badly wounding the monster. And I think from the outside, it's also related because we've also seen the reporting of of these failures. It makes somebody like me wonder, do the people in charge who themselves were sort of panicked or shaken by their failure on October 7th, do they really have an actual strategy for winning rather than, again, what it can look like from outside, which is just pounding Gaza and its people and its buildings very, very hard? To put it simply, Jonathan, Israelis trust the IDF, albeit there was a catastrophic failure and a terrible fiasco. Many of the Israelis don't trust the government. If it only were for the mere fact that the chief of staff Herzi Alevi, the chief of military intelligence Aaron Khaliva, the chief of the Shin Bet Ronen Bar, they all assumed responsibility. They said it loud and clear. We are responsible. We failed you. We were not there. And I got a telephone call. I got to tell you in it. I got a telephone call from a lady yesterday. She's from Nir Itzchak. She was born in Kibbutz Nir Itzchak. She left the Kibbutz many years ago, but she said we are all drafted now. And we are all, wo- she's working now in the Kibbutz. She's taking care of the, the cows and the, and the garden. And she told me, you got to stop reporting about military fiascos because we have to trust the military now. And I cannot trust, I cannot trust the political leadership, because they didn't assume responsibility. She spoke, of course, specifically about Bibi mm-hmm. Netanyahu. And that's something, Jonathan, that you have to bear in mind. It's a zero-sum game. So when I have news, and I you know, I call Yonit's editor, and I come to the newscast, and I bring news about a mail written by a lady in the intelligence trying to warn, and about other things that happened within the intelligence that nobody, you know, nobody listened to and many overlooked. I know the tricky part, and the tricky part is that any indictment 
against the military these days constitutes a letter of defense for Bibi Netanyahu. He will use it and abuse it, and he will do it anyway. And, you know, he tweeted against the, the chief of staff and the chief of the Shin Bet. And just yesterday, there was breaking news brought by a colleague, Sefi Ovadia, on Channel mm-hmm. 13, that a security lady from the office of the prime minister wanted to conduct a search in the chief of staff's bag and, and, and in his pockets to make sure he doesn't have a recording device when he enters the cabinet meeting. And of course, he refused. And then the, the office of the prime minister said it's, it was poor discretion on her side, but they didn't deny it. They didn't deny that mm-hmm. he was asked, uh, you know, to be searched on. So bottom line, we all three of us, we are journalists. Our sacred duty is to tell the story of pain, of agony, of loss, and to give the facts, to speak truth to the people and to speak truth to power. So when I have information which is important, I will deliver it, no matter who is being served by it and who might, be, might benefit. But we have to make sure that the context is there. And the context, you brought it. There was a military fiasco. There was an intelligence catastrophe. But there was also a prime minister who wouldn't listen, who wasn't there, who got you know, warnings and papers and documents about the fact that war is imminent. There is clear and present danger. Th- mm-hmm. These were the words written in the in the document revealed by Chaim Levinson from Iton Aretz, from, from the Aretz paper. And Bibi Netanyahu did nothing. And when generals appeared in the Knesset be- before the uh, voting on the reasonableness clause yeah. bill, they said there the generals, nobody came to their brief. So... We have to bring the context, but will we deliver the news? We will. Will someone be served by them? Or more often than not. You know, um, you, you're right about that. We should say to our listeners outside of Israel that you would have reported more extensively than others about the military failure. And specifically, you mentioned this, the junior officer who uh, is a woman. I don't think that's a coincidence. Maybe that's a discussion for another day. But she was warning, specifically warning from this exact scenario of, of Hamas and her commanders. We're not listening to her. She's in the, the prestigious 8200 unit. But there's there's more here in the sense of... You know, you're saying these these generals, they warned Netanyahu, clear and present danger. Yes, but did they warn themselves as well? Because it seems like they weren't on this as they should have been. And when you think about that conversation, again, reported more in Israeli media of that four o'clock in the morning, on the morning of the, the night between Friday and Saturday, the heads of some of the chiefs of the military, the IDF, the head of the Shin Bet, were on that call. They thought something was wrong. And the question I'm trying and to... The head of the intelligence was not on that call. The head of the military intelligence was not on well, the call, which you reported on as part, well. That's part, part of the problem. Of the I think the head of the Shin Bet uh, uh, was in another call. Anyway, the, yes, the, there the was... The question is, how do you, again, how far would you go on this story when Israel is still fighting war? That, that I guess, is what I'm, I'm trying to ask. You know, Yonit, I, I looked at the numbers a couple of minutes ago. Roughly half a million people watch you every night. They trust you, which means that you and I have to be attentive to them and we have to feel their pulse. So yes, we have to be attentive. We have to understand the mood of the nation. We have to understand that for many people, this kind of reporting seems as something harmful or wrong these days. But I think for us to cater to their needs, 
means also sometimes to irritate them. Because if we don't report the news now, even though we know these mm-hmm. are touchy days, when will we report them? Mm-hmm. Will we be the same kind of nation committed to freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, a- an open society which really enshrines openness and free discussion and uninhibited, robust public debate to quote a major American Supreme Court ruling. Will we be the same after this war is over? Because I don't want us to be the same, I will keep reporting. But I think we're implying other things, which is, for instance, your decision in the news, the newscast and the news uh, uh, company, not to air part of the propaganda produced by Hamas, those terrible videos released uh, Mm -hmm. of of people who were kidnapped, of people who are saying things dictated to them by Hamas. Mm -hmm. So here I think that we we can find a point in which you can report about those videos, but not run those videos. When we show the production by Hamas at the point in which they deliver the hostages to the Red Cross, we both feel uncomfortable. By now we know that they drugged some of the people who were kidnapped so that they look, you know, happier or better or whatever. <laughs> it's, it's kind of dilemmas that we never had to deal with. Mm-hmm. So I think when we, when we strike the compromise, when we find the exact point of telling people what ha- what's happening without serving Hamas propaganda, we have to remember two things. On the one hand, we have to feel the pulse of the nation. We have to understand that people are on the edge. All of us are on the edge. On the other hand, we have to remember our duty, and our duty remains and, we, and will forever remain to speak truth to power and to let people know the facts. Mm-hmm. I couldn't dis- uh, agree more with that. And I think your point about having to get these facts out, whatever the circumstances, is so right. I remember uh, the British Jewish columnist Chaim Bermant in this country used to say when he was confronted by those who didn't like him discussing uncomfortable things. He said, a family that doesn't wash its dirty linen in public doesn't wash its dirty linen at all. Right. Um, And it's a good rule that you have to do it. So I'm not disagreeing with that. And by the way, I think even if you weren't doing it, people are living with the consequences of the failure, even if you're not telling. They know it happened anyway. So Mm -hmm. I think that point I was asking about confidence. But you've just raised something which I think, again, people, listeners outside Israel will be surprised by, which is that, and I know it from conversations I've had with Yonit, that some of the most horrific images of October 7th, which are seen outside Israel, are not shown inside Israel. And I think that's a good corrective to those who brand the use of those images as somehow pro-Israel or pro-IDF propaganda because you would think they would be used to motivate the home population and they're not for reasons or or the kind of reasons of restraint and taste that you've been speaking about. But the other difference in how the war looks, and uh, when I was in your chair, Ilana, and Yonit and I were face-to-face, Yonit said to me, the people outside Israel are seeing a different war from the people inside. And that is particularly in terms of these images of the impact of Israeli bombs in Gaza. I just want to say it's totally normal for a country fighting war, for its civilian population, not to see images of that war. It's not just some peculiarly Israeli thing. And the example that's been in my mind is, you know, during the Vietnam War, Americans did not see in the, you know, they talked about their own soldiers. They didn't see the impact of 
of their war on Vietnamese. But eventually something did come through and it sort of leaked through in the famous photograph of the young girl fleeing the right. napalm bomb, etc. Is there a point and you know at which Israelis are not only for all the reasons we said completely understandably going deeper and deeper into the pain of October 7th but beginning to look at some of the photographs and images I'm seeing every day grieving families in Gaza who who would say they're not Hamas holding the bodies of children who were too young to be members of Hamas at what point does that get seen in Israel and if it does going back to my Vietnam parallel is there a, any point at which Israelis say we know how much we want to slay this monster but this price is is very is getting almost too hard to bear forgive me for asking Jonathan but don't you think that the latter part of your question offsets the disclaimer in the first part i mean when you say eventually guys you will have to watch it eventually you'll have to face it you'll have to reckon what kind of tragedy you're, infli- you're inflicting on civilians in gaza you'll have to see the photos of kids without families of families wiped out you'll have to see the destruction in gaza eventually but then do you remember what you said at the first part of your question about the kind of experience that we have been through is it possible to understand that, that a heartbroken nation is too broken to have you know a reservoir of empathy for the other for the enemy is it too much to ask for people in london in brussels in new york in harvard and mit is it too much to ask them to understand the one simple question that i heard i told you the other day jack tapper from cnn asking what was hamas expecting when they launched this brutal sadistic terrible horrific atrocity what were they expecting i want to ask it you know to to sit in front of an engineer a kindergarten teacher or a, a, a social worker or a carpenter in gaza a mother a father a young boy i'd like to ask them what do you think hamas expect what did sinwar expect when he did what he did did he expect us to sit idle by did he not know that israel will launch a counterattack 10 times worse and if he did expect that what does it mean regarding his responsibility to the very same photos that you want you need and me to watch or to show our people now this is and now comes my disclaimer this is not to say that i want to stay blind this is this is not to to say that i want to turn into a person indifferent and cold and uninterested in the agony of a mother or a child or a father or a family or a physician in Gaza no but i want you to understand a that we need the time and two you've written it yourself the other day it's a tragic choice suppose that we show these pictures suppose that we internalize them suppose we digest them suppose we relate to them suppose we are painful with them now what what do we do with the tunnels under the mosque what do we do with the tunnels under the school what do we do with rpg rockets or launchers or or missiles uh, in schools and in 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 classrooms and in civilians homes 
how do we fight this monster without inflicting, yes, this painful and agonizing pain on civilian population? Do you have a good answer? You've written it yourself. It's a tragic choice. But, and that's something that Yonita and I discuss once in a while, we are not foreign reporters. We're Israeli reporters. This is not the time for us to weigh both sides. This is the time for us to see that this nation has experienced something like nothing before and it's fighting for its life, not, not physically, it's not an existential war, but in many other ways. We are fighting for our lives. And, and yes, there's a toll, there's a price paid by many people on both sides on the fence, but it's, it's a tragic choice. I, um, first of all, I have to say, using Jonathan's words to throw the question back at him is something I dare do only after episode 140. So I, <laughs> I applaud you, Ilana, for doing that. For doing what? Uh, for t- 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 taking Jonathan's words and throwing them uh, ah, and okay. asking him a question. But I, I want to add to that, if I can, make this a little bit more a discussion, not, not a, really a question. Generally speaking, and you, you mentioned this, Jonathan, uh, we don't show atrocities on Israeli television. We don't show it of our side this time or of another side. There are all kinds of reasons for that. It's mainstream television, the demography of people watching from the age of four to the age of 80. It's at eight o'clock. It's, it's, it's prime time. So we've always been very, very careful in this story as well. I think the best example would probably be American media after 9-11. If you remember in the first few months, they didn't show the people jumping out of the buildings, out of the towers, because it was too much for a nation yeah. in trauma. And we think that as well. So just generally, we are not showing the atrocities on the Israeli side. We're definitely not showing pictures. We're showing the destruction in Gaza, but we're not showing the pictures you're seeing uh, right. in London. I think that we are showing what is going on in Gaza much more than we used to in other conflicts between Israel and Hamas. I'm not sure, and I, I, I pick on what, what at the end of what Ilana was saying, I'm not sure that it would change something in the way Israelis are viewing this war because they are very much in in their own grief. And at the end of the day, and again, you know this, I met a friend, actually a mutual friend of Ilana's and mine yesterday, and he gave me, he comes from Washington, he gave the whole situation of how many Americans see Israel uh, as being the bad guy and as inflicting this damage in Gaza. And then I just asked the same as, as Ilana did. Okay, then what do you do? Exactly. What do you do? I just um, it strikes me listening to you both that the one group of people who are either forced to or just are immersed in both narratives are diaspora Jews. Because diaspora Jews are sitting in London or New York. And so we're seeing the images on the BBC and CNN because there's no holding back for they're not uh, uh, restrained by any of the factors you're describing. But they also connect emotionally with the narrative of October 7th in the most direct way, more than any other group except Israelis themselves, because they have family in you know, the south of Israel or families who were evacuated from the north and so on. They are Jewish and therefore feel the historic weight of the moment of October the 7th, that this is a trauma that will rank in, in Jewish history. They are putting up the posters of the hostages. They are trading on WhatsApp messages about the latest word that's come out of what happened in Barry, etc. But they are also then putting on the radio and hearing the BBC 
where there's the interview with the grieving father in Gaza. And so the tragic choice column that you've referred to, Ilana, in a way is something I'm living and breathing because I feel both pulls and can see that both are impossible and that you can't reconcile both. That it is the monster has to be slayed, but slaying the monster inflicts an unbearable price. And both are unbearable. Letting the monster live is unbearable. And what's required to destroy the monster is also unbearable. So I think diaspora Jews are in this very particular position. Jonathan, letting the monster live is impossible. Taking the price of being done and over with it is expensive. It's the difference between impossible and expensive. Yes. And, and by the way, and well, by the way, you as a diaspora I, Jew, you are living both narratives. Yonit and I, as journalists on Israeli television news, we live both narratives in terms of the journalistic ethos of speaking the truth, delivering the facts, and the Israeli ethos that you know reunites you and consolidates you and demands from for some kind of solidarity in these times. So we are both also living in both worlds and both narratives, but. There's mm. enough sorrow for everyone. <laughs> That's yeah, very true. And no uh, you know, I, I, I want to shift to the, the world response. And, and we're actually in this conversation already, but you, you have a doctorate in law from, from Yale. It's a few years ago, but I, I do want to sort of pick your brain, what you think about what's going on in the Ivy League in, in, in the United States, particularly after what we've seen the presidents of Harvard and MIT and Penn all asked a very, it's not supposed to be a stumper, it's actually a pretty simple question, right? What would you do? You, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate the university's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying or, and harassment? You see the response. It's context dependent. It depends on context. Uh, and it doesn't it happen only in crosses the line between speech and conduct. How do you read this? What has happened to Ivy League in America? What what is what is going on there? You know, I'm I'm ashamed to admit that I'm almost an ignorant when it comes to the anti-Semitic sentiment that obviously or presumably was, was, you know, was somewhere there waiting mm -hmm. to erupt, kind of something dormant, and, and just all of a sudden it's in our face. You know, I came from Argentina, I understand you can sense some of it in South America as well, but mostly in North America and in Europe, and in liberal humanistic universities, enlightened, the most enlightened, you know, shrines of knowledge and academic uh, research in the world. I don't know the answer. I don't, mm -hmm. has it been there forever and just, you know, erupted right now? Uh, does it have to do with walk? culture. I know that my son Zohar was corresponding over Instagram or Twitter or something with a kind of woke guy like this. And the guy was writing to Zohar, you're a colonizer. And Zohar was writing to him about Ophir Lipstein, who was killed in Faraza in the kibbutz. Who was the head of the council. The head of the regional mm -hmm. council. And he was architecting and he was launching an industrial park for Gazan engineers to work and make a fair living there. And Zohar asked him, says Ophir is no colonizer. Zohar was writing about to him about Shlomo from Kfaroz who sacrificed, you know, he gave his life to save his wife and his daughter and grandkids. And he was also a peace activist. Is he a colonizer? He was asking him about Vivian Silver from Be'eri. She was marching with Palestinian women a couple of days before she was murdered in Be'eri. And Zohar asks him, is she a colonizer? And if she is, it ain't no way to cry freedom. <laughs> and and so I told me the guy disappeared. But but hmm. uh, do we have answers to the show that we saw just tonight? Mm -hmm. 
in the United States with Representative Elise Stefanik, who was, you know, confronting these ladies mm-hmm. from Penn and Harvard and MIT. I have no idea, Yonit. I, I just, you know, I know that it's a wake-up call. Mm-hmm. It's a wake-up And Jonathan, it has almost nothing to do, almost nothing to do with what the military is doing now in Gaza. Because if these ladies are not able to answer yes or no to the question, does telling Jews that the Jewish people has to undergo genocide, does that amount to bullying and harassment? If they cannot say simply yes, it has nothing to do with the war in Gaza. Yeah, no, I don't. We, we, we all agree on this. I mean, this was a really shocking bit of congressional uh, inquiry to hear the one after another walk into this same, you know, Trap. I mean, it flatters it to call it a trap because it was actually it was just a straightforward question. Yeah, and they just couldn't answer it. No avail. No actually, avail. There, there are two things there. I just have to mention. One is because until this happened, you kind of could have said to yourself, "Well, it's the young college students. They, you know, as you said, this is the woke ideology. They they kind of misfit it with the decolonization, and 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 that's why it works. Okay, sometimes students like to I don't know whatever rebel against their parents, and this is, but these are presidents of these institutions and they can't answer the question it is it, it's really unbelievable when you when you watch it like that it's beyond me yeah no i thought i thought we i think we all agree on that one and i agree that it predates now it's something the it is the mentality of, of, of viewing israel as a settler colonialist enterprise and that predates what's happening now if anything what happened on october 7th revealed that there is this thinking about Israel rather than causing it. I want to go back to something um, uh, your neat raised and then and then sort of put to one side, which is a sort of gender question about those warnings. And again, this is something that I saw a, a, a part of just myself, which is that the at the highest level there was this warning that came from a female official about uh, who was raising the alarm by what she saw from. Hamas on the other side of the boundary, but also those people whose job was to look at the border. And I visited, you only know, the Kibbutz Kisufim, where there was particularly stationed there, one of those observation posts, as it were, staffed overwhelmingly by women, by young women, who were looking at those monitors and assessing what was going on, who who were themselves, according to the people who told me about it, passing up warnings up the chain. Is it possible that a factor in the ignoring of those warnings was the fact that the, you know, human intelligence or just the eyes on observation at the most basic level was coming from young women, that the report at a higher level was coming from a woman? You know, there's going to be a huge inquiry after all this, which is going to look at every aspect. Will one of the aspects be basic sexism? Uh, just uh, one point that the highest level claims that they were not exposed to her email. But anyway, I would like to say it's a coincidence. It could be a man. It could be a woman. It could be anything in between. It has to be a pro uh, and it has to be someone who was very, very professional and uh, and very attentive to the information she got. Uh, on the other hand, I'd like to think it's not a coincidence. Uh, You remember Carol Gilligan, uh, the feminist who's written uh, the book in a different voice, and she she wrote about this other regarding female psyche. We listen, we are connected, we have less ego, we have more doubt. You know, every time I have a dialogue with the editor-in-chief of our program, which is she is a, a lady, and uh, and she tells me she she speaks with a lot of confidence, and then she says, 
but maybe I'm wrong, <laughs> which your male editor will never say, right? You don't have to admit, <laughs> I said it. Either way, either way, is it gender connected? Uh, I, I wish it weren't. I suspect it is. And anyway, anyway, Jonathan and Unit, we, women, female, we speak up more than we used to. I'm not sure they listen to us more than they used to. I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, this reminds me, throws me back to an article in The Atlantic many years ago, the cover piece. It was called The Confidence Gap, about how the biggest gap that exists between men and women is still of, of self-confidence. A lot of research going into that. I think just, and again, this is, you know, broad strokes generalization, but we tend to doubt ourselves more and us women, sorry, Jonathan, mm-hmm. but, but that, I think that extends to doubting everything around us more. And that is what was really needed here in, in this, in t- particularly in the intelligence question. And, of and, saying, and I'll, I'll just you yeah. give you that. As far as I know, there are more ladies that have been issuing warnings and we'll hear about them later. Yeah. That's, that's but I a, hope that, that we're that's gentlemen as well. the rest of the story. Yeah. Um, I do want to, you, you said, again, we, <clears throat> I started with this and we kind of maybe moved it aside, but, but as our conversation progresses, I mean, you made... Aliyah when your family was six. And, and just to kind of zoom out on this whole thing, the, the Zionist ideal, right? To, to, to protect Jews in Eretz Israel, in the state of Israel. And that failed so miserably. Uh, this week when we had the, the hostages return and one of the military analysts in the, in the studio said to me, the Zionist ideal is to bring home the hostages. And I said, well, the Zionist idea was to, ideal was to make sure they weren't actually abducted in the first place. What happens to that idea, to the raison d'être of Israel, if Jews can't be protected? And what happens to us, you know, uh, as you mentioned, I came from South America and there is a, there's a phrase in South America and Latin America and Central America, la ausencia del Estado, the absence of the state, which you can see in the jungles, in the remote areas, in the favelas in Brazil, in the miserable places in Colombia and even in Argentina, la ausencia del Estado, you and I, have never experienced the absence of the state. It was always there, better, worse, but it was always there. The military, all of a sudden, they disappeared on Saturday morning, October 7th. And and I ask myself this question, what will happen to us when this war is over? What kind of people will we emerge from this war as Israelis, as Jewish people, as Zionist people? And, and first of all, I think we will have to find the words. We lack the words. We cannot even conceptualize or, or give words to what happened. We need the words. You know, I, I interviewed a soldier, not a soldier, a policeman from Ofakim uh, one day in the studio, and he told me about how many terrorists he killed and how many bodies he saw. And he was, you know, he's, he's a 50-something years old man. And he came to me when the broadcast was over and said, it was so good for me to tell you the story because now I know it happened. So we need the words to know yeah. that it happened, and we need the words for another reason. I, I was reminded yesterday night of a text by David Grossman. He wrote it after he lost his son in the Second Lebanon War, and he wrote about the fact that he needs the words to breathe. And, and he said that after years of living in a, an extreme and violent reality, your world becomes smaller and smaller, and it shrinks on you. And and he says, when I write the words, I create a space for myself. When we write, he says, we feel that the world is moving again. It's flexible. It's full of opportunities. When I write, all of a sudden, 
I feel that I'm not paralyzed anymore in front of the, of the predator. When I write, I feel there are so many possibilities in the human condition. And all of a sudden, I start breathing with both lungs. Mm -hmm. I, I, I remember this text and I came back to it. So first of all, we will need the words. We still don't have words. Hebrew is a rich language. English is even more. I'm afraid to say, but both languages. Hey, but it's, uh, we're older, so we get that. I'll yeah, but say. they have Shakespeare and <laughs> Jonathan, and, and, and we don't have the words, so we will need the words. Mm -hmm. And second, we will need to reckon with the peril, the danger of falling back on Jewish tragedy. We sometimes are tending to fall back on tragedy and victimhood, and uh, it's kind of, you know, it's branded on our body. It's mm -hmm. burnt on our souls, Jewish tragedy. But Jewish tragedy has brought up or created Zionism. Zionism was born out of Jewish tragedy. And Jewish tragedy drives pessimism. Zionism had to consume a huge amount of optimism because you need to be an optimism to build, to create and to have a miracle come true. This is the, the, the sheer essence of Zionism, creating the miracle of sovereign life for the Jewish people in the land of Israel. That had to consume optimism. Will we have that optimism the day after to rebuild, to reckon with the new reality, to face this defining moment in our history? I, I'm afraid that falling back on tragedy, and we tend to do it so easy. You know, I'm always reminded of another story that I've read of, of David Grossman, a short story that he, he wrote years and years ago about his wedding. And his aunt, she was a Treblinka survivor, perhaps she was an Auschwitz survivor, and she came with a Band-Aid on her arm. And he realized it, and after the wedding was over, he asked her, why did you come with a Band-Aid? She said, I don't, didn't want to come with a number of my arm, on my arm because I didn't want to ruin your wedding and your happy day. And he wrote, you know, it's so fragile because just the rip of a bandaid and the tragedy is there again. And here the tragedy is there, is here again. Mm. All of a sudden we speak about, you know, Anna Frank kind of scenes, right? Kids hiding in a closet, waiting for 14 years for the military to come. Ours, yeah. Our kids, Israeli kids. Yeah. And also the fact that it happened in Israel. So it was like coming from, from this sense of total or almost total security and confidence. And, and the state is there and the IDF is there and, the, you know, the military is coming. And it didn't come. And, and, and so the fall was, was also painful. I think we will have to rise. We will rise. And, and it's not a cliche, really. It's not a cliche. We will rise because that's what we do, because that's what we have to do. You remember this mother of Ben Zussman who was killed this week in, in Gaza? And she stood up. She stood on his grave. And that's what she said. Yeah. We will rise. And she said, but we need a leadership that worthy, worthy of us. Of us. Yeah. And she's so right. Well, that is a hopeful note of a kind, which is hard in these conversations. All of us are finding that. So, Ilana Dan, thanks so much for coming back to Unholy. Thank you for having me. So that was our conversation with Ilana Dan. It's always great to talk to Ilana. She manages to put into words... Um, so eloquently, what I think so many of us have been feeling uh, in the past two months. 
She really does. When she last came on the podcast, it was to talk about the uh, judicial overhaul, the judicial coup, and she'd really gone out on a limb, sort of editorializing about that. And here she is being a very forceful, fluent, eloquent advocate, in effect, defender of her country. And she just, in a way, embodies, personifies that shift that there were all those people who were protesting, were against the government three months ago, five months ago, eight months ago, who are now very, very clear what the country has to do for its own existence. In a way, both fights were for the soul of the country, and she articulates the soul of the country as well as anyone. Um, we should say our thank yous, not only to Ilana Diane, but to everyone else this week, Yoni. True. We'll say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer and to Omer Primat. A special thanks to Omri Barak. And, uh, so let's hope for some rays of light in this uh, Hanukkah season, and we will see each other next week. Yeah, a, a miracle would be nice. Um, let's hope <laughs> really for that really would. <laughs> uh, it would be good. Um, see you next week, Yoni. <laughs> see you. 